One of the most hotly debated topics in evangelical Christianity is the topic of the rapture of the church. Some believers feel strongly that the Bible supports the idea that Christ will come to take believers out of the world before his return with them at the second coming. This rapture is secret in that no one will see Jesus coming except believers. This is in contrast to the second coming of Christ after the tribulation, when every eye will see him. There's a lot of disagreement among Christians regarding the timing of this thing called the rapture. Some believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, which will occur before the beginning of seven years of suffering and tribulation. Others hold to a mid-tribulation rapture, which will happen in the middle, and still others to a post-tribulation rapture, which would happen at the end of the seven years of tribulation. With all of the confusion and debate surrounding this topic, how do we look objectively at what Scripture actually says about it? Can Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians agree to disagree if they don't see eye-to-eye on the specifics of these doctrines? Or does getting this wrong lead someone to apostasy? Welcome to the Beards and Bible Podcast. My name is Joshua Brooker. I actually typically don't say my last name or my full name, but today, today I did. Today's a right. new day. Today is a new day. I'm joined, as always, by Gabriel. Mm. Gabriel Joel Rutledge. Mm. 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 How do you feel about your middle name? I like it. I like it. Yeah. It actually, yeah. you know, I try to reinvent myself when I was in eighth grade. You know, I start, I, I switched schools uh, mm. to to a different school, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go by my middle name. And so I kind of had these like alternate ego kind of things going on. Where at school I was known as Joel, and then mm. yeah, at home I was known as Gabe. And yeah. I was just trying to. It didn't really stick. You know, it lasted maybe six months, and then. It's fine. Like, all right, guys, listen, everybody huddle up. My name is not Joel. <laughs> you what? Yeah. Who are you? Yeah. Um, I could never do that because my middle name is Edgar. <laughs> but you already knew that, didn't you? No, I didn't know. Is it really? Yes. You didn't know that? No, did I didn't know no that. Idea. We've known each other no 20 idea. years. You didn't know that. That's crazy. I like, no, I feel like you've hidden that from me. I think I have. I think I hid it from most people until I got my college and grad school diplomas. And I was kind of torn because, like, like, man, I'm really, I worked really hard for these. I want to hang them up in my office somewhere, but they have my middle name on it. And I was mm. like, I'll just. So in every office I've ever had, I've hidden them behind the door so people can't mm. see them. I mean, I see them and I'm like, oh, yeah, like I did that. But then if people see them, the first thing they do is they look and they find my name and they're like, your middle name is Edgar? Hmm. Not, well, you got a degree and you worked really hard to learn all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why, is that like a family name? Is it like Edgar? Yeah, it's my granddad's name. Oh, okay. All right. But here's the thing. My dad's name is Alan Edgar. Mm. So his whole life, he was mercilessly tortured for being Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I just, when people huh. find out my middle name, they'd be like, ooh, hey, look at you, Edgar. And I'm like, shut up. So I can, if I ever reinvented myself, it just wouldn't work, unless I wanted to reinvent myself like Mister Belvedere. Like, <laughs> <laughs> hello everyone, my name is Edgar. 
Which uh, I just want to apologize and also shout out to all our listeners from the UK. That was probably the most yeah. offensive. It was really British offensive. accent. I'm oh, really yeah. sorry, guys. Yeah, don't ever do that. That was. Really I know. Bad. I'm sorry. That was like Bert from Mary Poppins. That was really bad. Well, I think I think we had speaking of fake accents. I think we had a, a classmate who had a pretty intense speech impediment <laughs> that we suspected. Uh, was masking their speech impediment with a fake British accent. Do you remember that? What? Remember? Yeah. No, yeah. I don't remember that at all. All right, no, let's change something then. Let's move on. Well, we should. <laughs> I think we definitely should because that, first of all, that's offensive on many levels to yeah. both people from the UK and people yeah, with so, speech impediment. So there was someone with a with the British accent, but it was a little bit suspicious. Okay. Yeah, and so, yeah. Okay, if you don't remember it, we're not going to delve into it. Yeah, okay. let's not go there. That's. Um... But how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was great, friend. It was great. Yeah. The week before was a little weird. Uh, I had a intoxicated driver pull in front of me on the highway, and both her car was totaled and my car was totaled before she was arrested on the scene. Hmm. So that was a little traumatizing. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Yeah. But other than that, we had a really good good Thanksgiving. I just had the whole whole rental car situation and trying to find a, trying to find a truck in the market right now. That's a lot of fun. I'm glad so, you are safe and thanks, man. Okay, and unharmed. Yeah, yeah. I smoked a turkey after that, and uh, that was good. That made up for it. Turkey was delicious, and then I, I got a nice eight point buck on the Saturday after uh, Thanksgiving. So, wow, that also made up for it. So I'm not even mad anymore. America, don't have a truck, so I had to like <laughs> carry it <laughs> ten miles out of the woods. No, just kidding. I just picture you trying to cram a, uh, an eight point in the back of a Toyota Prius. <laughs> yeah. The, the minivan. No, actually yeah. the, the rental car company gave me a truck, but I'm going to have to really clean out the bed or they're going to think I'm a serial killer. Um, cause there's like blood and deer guts in the back of it. So oh, nice. take it, take it to a car wash or just so. leave it in there <laughs> and just film their reaction. Just stare at them. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes after work, I do some very interesting things. <laughs> What'd you do for uh, Thanksgiving? Yeah. Well, we we uh we have a tradition of celebrating. So there's a lot of people in our congregation that don't have family, in, you know, in town and stuff, and hmm. uh you know just single people, uh you know odds and ends kind of like you know people that are new to town and that sort of thing. So we always have you know a congregational Thanksgiving meal, and oh, uh, so cool, we had about man. we had about fifty come this year, and it was it was great. That's awesome, um, dude. Yeah, we just encourage people, you know, celebrate with their families if they have family in town. But then, if they don't have extended family in town, then come celebrate with us. That so, is awesome, man. It was a lot of What's fun. What's on yeah. the menu? Did you, did you guys do like big turkey stuff, or? Yeah, yeah. I think we had like two or three different style turkeys going on. And, nice. Uh, you know all the all the fixins. All the fixins. It was, uh, yeah. I was pretty what? enraptured. Oh, you with, stole my transition. With the green bowl, green green bean casserole. Mm, you stole my transition. What, what was your transition? I want to hear it. I was going to say, was that event enrapturing? Ooh, or close. Yeah. yeah. Close. Yeah. Man, man, actually, what a topic. It actually, like, I, I gave considerable <laughs> amount of time and thought to how I was going to present that transaction, like, that transition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sitting up drinking coffee this morning, talking about, like, thinking to myself and having this inner dialogue <laughs> of, like, okay, he's going to say this, <laughs> then I'll say that, and then I'll say this. So, yeah. <laughs> Just to get right into it. Yeah. I, I arguably gave more thought over that transition than the topic. Of the day. <laughs> you don't even you didn't even study anything I told sent you to study, did you? Yeah, no. Uh, that's funny. So yeah. yeah, this this is our topic today. This this idea of 
rapture and the rapture. And of course, as soon as we say that, there's probably people listening that have all sorts of, I don't say baggage, but mm-hmm. they probably have all sorts of um, associations connected with that based on whatever flavor of Christianity maybe they, they came up through. But uh, Gabe, what do you think of when when most Christians think of that word rapture, what do you think is on their minds? Ah, oh, well, we used to have these t-shirts that we would like sell in the, the bookstore or whatever at a church. And, you know, people, people in the youth group would wear them. And it was basically like the, this pair of like high top sneakers uh, mm-hmm. and then like, like smoke coming out of the top of these empty high top uh, sneakers. <laughs> I remember that. Shirt. Or, or like a bumper sticker <laughs> on someone's, someone's in ca- car. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Yeah. 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 So yeah, yeah, you just have like, it's kind of like a, it became sort of a pop culture, uh, kind of icon, I guess. Is the yeah. Idea of, yeah. Well, um, we're going to look at some history of this teaching, specifically the pre-tribulational rapture. But one of the things that is undeniable if you study the history of it is in the 70s and 80s and 90s, in the American Evangelical Church in particular, this teaching exploded. Mm-hmm. Like this teaching was so harped on. This teaching was almost used as a an evangelical tool. Like this is how we almost taught people the necessity of salvation. Like you don't want to be left behind. That was like a big thing, right? Yeah. Um, and it was also almost spoken of as a major. You know, this is like a major teaching of the church, which is historically kind of unprecedented. It never really became as prominently taught um, as it did in those three decades. But we'll, we'll, we'll explore the history of that. But why do you think that is? Why do you think in those three decades in particular in the American Evangelical Church that was such a, a massive uh, teaching and massive topic? Hmm. Well, there was a lot going on, I think, in, in the news and current, ev- current events at that time, I think, mm. that were kind of lending itself to this idea of you know, you had uh, 1967, you had a war in Israel, you had the Camp uh, mm-hmm. David Accords, you had all these things centered around um, Israel and covenants and peace. And hmm. and then you had, you know, political turmoil here in the United States of America um, that I think, like I said, it kind of lended itself to this, um, you know, that this imminent return is, is right here upon us. And then you yeah. had books coming out like in uh, 88 Reasons, uh, that the rapture will happen in 1988. I think, mm-hmm. I think if I'm getting the title correct. <clears throat> so yeah, yeah. kind of this perfect coalescence of different events and, and things. Yeah. Well, and you could also say there was a lot more globalization in those three decades than ever before. Yeah. You know, after yeah. the Second World War, technology was catching up to the point where satellite television and computers and, you know, mm-hmm. air travel and things like that. And so I think for a lot of people in their imagination, they went, oh man, we're, we're right there. We're right on the precipice of all these things. Um, being able to happen, and, and I can see how these things could happen at any any time. Mm. Um, do, do you think most Christians, when you talk about this idea of rapture, and you say, "Hey, um, show me where this is in your Bible," do you think most Christians can do that, or is it something they've just been taught? Ah, uh, man, I think yeah, I think you can you can stake a claim in some kind of belief, uh, especially in eschatology. And then you can find proof text to back it up. But mm-hmm. I mean, if you're asking, like, do I think most Christians are educated on this doctrine enough that they can actually turn to chapter and verse? I don't know. I, I would say it's it's probably 50-50. Yeah. Um, you know, I know some people who are like, I, I sent you a, 
a text that I received just before coming on the <laughs> podcast this morning from somebody who, who maybe knew what topic we were going to be discussing. But they sent me a YouTube video that's like an hour and 40 minutes long. And mm-hmm. I think that he could probably show you chapter and verse and back yeah. up this the idea of the rapture using it, scripture. It kind of seems like people either are obsessed with this or people are clueless about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, and, and, I, and I hope that, I mean, yeah. both of those things are massive extremes. And forgive me if that sounds so polarizing, but... I feel like I've met people who that's all they want to talk about. It's just like the end times. Mm-hmm. Or there's people that they don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Because they're yeah. like, man, I I don't know at all. I've read Revelation, and it's, it's clear as mud. I can't figure out what's going on in this book. I have no idea how this is supposed to happen. I don't know, so I'm just not going to bother studying. So and which it's... which one are you in? <laughs> <laughs> are you obsessed with it? Are you like, well, I'm like, uh so I, I I will say this. Um, I I belong to a church where we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so back in 2010, I believe, was the first time we studied Revelation um, all the way through, line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And, and it brought like a tremendous amount of clarity to just this idea of eschatology. You know, actually getting in the word and studying it and doing the heavy lifting of like, okay, here's what it says. Yeah. And then in 2013, we did it again as a church. We went through it again. And then in 2018, I taught the book of Revelation, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So I don't think that I would claim an expertise because I think the fascinating thing about scripture is the more you read it, the more questions you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that. As I've studied it, there are things that I thought were just so mysterious that you could never know the answers for, that you get into it and you kind of begin to see them a little bit more clearly yeah. and maybe understand kind of what what the Word is actually saying in it. And sometimes like what we focus on and what we obsess with is like the minor thing yeah. and not like the actual truth that the Lord has for us as believers to grab onto and live our lives by. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I always say, like, we should be obsessed with what the Bible is obsessed with. Yes. And, it, and, and you know, the, the parables and the teachings of Christ in the Gospels is like, there's always this theme of, hey, guys, I'm going to come back. Mm-hmm. You don't know when I'm coming back. Be ready. Here's what ready looks like. Exactly. And I think that we should be obsessed with that being ready part and getting 100%. other people ready. And mm-hmm. being completely okay with this thing of like not knowing the day or the hour. Yeah, absolutely. And I, <clears throat> I think that's where I've landed. I mean, honestly, like, mm-hmm. um, and I joke as I say this, but it's kind of true. I feel like 11 years ago, I knew way more about this topic than I do today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. before I studied the book of Revelation three times all the way through, right? Um, I think that takes a lot of humility to say that. I mean, like, I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm right there with you. And don't think, listeners, that we're like, deconstructing our faith or something like that. It's no, just, no, 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 we're no. making an admittance that as teachers and students and scholars of the Bible, like we are, we're saying that let's refocus our attention and our time and our energies on not unraveling the mysteries of his return and what exactly it will look like, when exactly it will be, but let's focus on, you know, shoring up our marriages and how to teach our yeah. children and, dis- and <clears throat> raising up disciples for the kingdom. Amen. Yeah, and I think that's the thrust of of all of the passages that speak of the second return of Christ is always be ready, mm-hmm. you know, and be be diligent doing what the master has called you to do so that when he comes back you'll be found faithful. So let's get into it. When um we say this word, 
rapture, or when Christians say the word rapture, if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian or you're new to this and you have never heard that word, um, that word actually is not found in the Bible. Wah, 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 right? <laughs> Irony of all ironies. Um, <clears throat> but the concept itself is found in the Bible. So that's kind of what Christians mean is this concept and it's described primarily in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. Um, Gabe, you want to look that up and, and yeah. read that for us, and I'll kind of un- unpack a few things while you're looking that up. So that word rapture, while Gabe's looking that up, means a, a carrying off, a transport, a snatching away. And so while the word rapture is not found in the Bible, there is an event described in Scripture in which God snatches away all believers from the earth— in order to make way for his righteous judgment to be poured out on the earth kind of during the last days. And so that's what Christians mean by this idea of the rapture. So Gabe, you've got that verse pulled up? I do, yeah. Uh, This is ESV. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yeah, so this whole being caught up together with the Lord is kind of what that passage is describing. What's really the passage is describing first, believers who have died, being resurrected, kind of on that last day, being given glorified bodies, and then taken from the earth, and then all who were remaining on the earth at the time of Christ's return will then be caught up with the Lord to meet him in the air. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's basically the idea of rapture that's in the Bible, and that seems pretty straightforward, and that seems pretty like, oh, okay, that's cool. Before Christ judges the earth <clears throat> and remakes the earth, um, and to a new heaven, new earth, or before the millennial kingdom, which we'll get into that here in a minute, um, his believers will be taken from the earth. So what's so complicated about that? Well, what the complication with that is not the concept of the rapture. The, the complications with it is when does that take place? And so um, really to understand and to try to get these different views that we're going to talk about today in its place, we've got to kind of define a couple of things. And the first is we've got to first talk about this idea of the millennial kingdom. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about today, like a pre-tribulational rapture, post-tribulational rapture, mid-tribulational rapture, that is a view, and all these are really views that are only held by kind of pre-millennial Christians. Um, The post-millennial rapture can be, or excuse me, post-tribulational rapture can be held by someone who is amillennial, but this idea of tribulation still with amillennials, they don't really believe necessarily that we will know when that has begun or when that's ended. But um, 
pre-millennial Christians believe that Jesus will physically return to the earth, and then there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ that kind of results in a golden age of peace. Right? Yeah. So that's called premillennial theology, and the contrast of that is called amillennial or amillennial theology, and it teaches that the thousand-year reign that's mentioned in Revelation 20 is really just symbolic for the age of the church. And so um, all millennials basically believe that right now we're kind of in this um, this symbolic thousand-year reign of Christ as we rule and reign with them as believers here on the earth, and next time we see Jesus is when he comes for final judgment and to establish a new heaven and new earth. So for them, the idea of a rapture is just kind of like, well, we'll be— they're, they're basically post-tribulational because, again, the tribulation is just kind of we're going to be in it, and we're not really sure we're going to be in it because we're just here, and then next time we see Jesus, that's it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think we've talked about this at some point um, in our in our histories, <clears throat> in our podcast history, but, yeah, so, like, for instance, I'm a, I'm a pre— I'm a, I'm a historic pre-millennialist. Man, just throwing it out there, huh? Yeah, no, yeah. No so, build-up, no nothing, no mystery, no suspense, <laughs> just throwing it out. But it's important to recognize that there may be people listening and denominations of Christianity, big major denominations of Christianity, which aren't pre-millennialist. Mm-hmm. So we kind of take that for granted sometimes that, you know, um, we assume that, okay, everyone we're conversing with has this idea of like a literal millennium reign of Christ, a thousand-year reign of Christ on right. earth, and that's not the case. You know, some people believe wildly different sometimes sure 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 so it's important to keep that in mind so when we talk about these different views we're going to mention the millennial kingdom and most people that believe in like a pre-tribulational rapture would fall into the camp of also being pre-millennials and so their timeline would be um first there is the rapture of the church then there's seven years of suffering and we'll talk about that here in a minute and then christ uh returns and he sets up shop on the earth for a thousand years. And then after that, there's the final judgment, and then there's the final eternal state, right? So something we're going to be talking about a lot, and all this is important to kind of lay the groundwork before we get into these views, is the tribulation. And so the tribulation in the scriptures is this future seven-year period of time that is coming where God will finalize his judgment of the unbelieving world. And it's during this tribulation that this figure called the Antichrist, or in Second Thessalonians he's called the man of lawlessness, in Revelation 13 he's called the beast, will rule and reign over the earth under the power of Satan. And so we see the, this tribulation throughout Scripture in a lot of ways. It's actually in quite a bit in the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um we see it in Matthew 24, kind of this this great tribulation, which um, that would can be kind of the second half of that, the three and a half years of the second half of that. Uh, the day of trouble, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30 says that. And so, man, there's a lot you can study about the, the great tribulation, but um, essentially what happens is that in these seven years, this figure, the Antichrist, will make a covenant with the people of God, um, depending on your uh, theology, probably Israel. And then in the middle of that 
covenant, so probably halfway into it, according to Daniel 9.27, this figure will break the covenant and um, basically demand that people worship him as God in the temple. So if, if you see this as kind of a literal thing, you would have to actually have room for a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem for this to happen, which is kind of an interesting thing to think through. So, Gabe, what, what do you think about that? I mean, add to that. Is it, when we talk about the tribulation, kind of how do you see it? Is it kind of this literal seven-year period where three and a half years of peace and then three and a half years of great suffering and Antichrist rules and reigns and all that stuff? Yeah, so I, I interpret it as, as a literal event, um, mm-hmm. a literal seven-year period, um, which I think is is kind of hinted at in other stories of Scripture, um, you know, like the, the plagues over Israel and... Um, you know, yeah, it's just there's just too much prophetic passages um, that are that are kind of intersecting on top of each other, talking about this this period of tribulation. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the Greek behind this word tribulation is the idea of like pressing together, like pushing mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm. Um, which is to me draws up the imagery of like olives being crushed um, hmm. and pushed together for the sake of like excreting the oil. Um, hmm which, you know, produces light, produces illumination. But, you know, it's it's like a purification process, I think. But hmm. um, what it all looks like exactly, you know, I, I don't know. Um, and, you know, with if there's going to be a temple, not a temple, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just waiting and seeing. But yeah, this isn't this isn't something that my faith entirely hangs on. I'm hmm. I'm I'm saying, you know, definitively, I believe that this is something that is literal and, and will happen. But um if it doesn't pan out that way, I have the hopefully have the humility to say, okay, yeah, I got that wrong. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point that, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of different interpretations of who this figure, the Antichrist is. I mm-hmm. told my church this past week, as we were talking about this in Second Thessalonians, I said, one trick we've been using as Christians is, whichever political candidate you didn't vote for in the last election, that's the Antichrist. We've been saying that for years. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but I mean, even in the Reformation, it was uh, some reformers that taught that the Pope was the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we got to be really careful to, you know, assign yeah. dates and assign, um, you know, being a casting director for the Lord and saying, okay, so the part of the Antichrist will be played by none other than Barack Obama. I mean, <laughs> we, <laughs> um, this is up to the Lord, but it does seem very clear that the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, speaks of seven years of suffering, seven years of um, a figure that will be some sort of a false messiah ruling and reigning, and then within that, seven years of intense persecution of the people of God, so both Jews and Christians. So that's really important to understand what the Bible says about the tribulation. And then the second half of that tribulation is called the Great Tribulation, a time of suffering that has never before been on the earth, because it helps us understand the views concerning when this thing called the rapture is actually going to take place. And so really there's three main views that we're going to look at today, and that is will the rapture take place before this time of suffering? before this tribulation, that's called the pre-tribulational view. Will it take place after this time of suffering? That's called the post-tribulational view. Or will it take place in the middle of this suffering? That's called the mid-tribulational view. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when people say pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, 
that's what they mean by that. Well, and I, I would add, you know, you could theoretically add a fourth view, and that is, will there be a rapture at all? So, for mm, for instance, yeah. like you know, there's, I I think I think some people, and I think I'm, I might be correct in saying this, that most of Christendom, if you include like Catholicism and stuff, most of it doesn't hold to a rapture at all. So, for instance, uh, Stacy, my wife, grew up Lutheran, and mm. I grew up. And you know the charismatic evangelical world so where that was pre-trib, pre-millennial. Everybody's going to yes, get raptured at any yeah, time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So when we got married, <laughs> and you know we were talking through some of that stuff, she was like, "Wait a second, you have to break this down and explain it to me." Like I, right, right you know, right. this is this is very foreign to me. It just it was like there was just the second return of Christ, and His kingdom is started and you know right. so they held that millennial view but she wasn't taught that there was going to be this like snatching away and rapture whatever yeah. which is well, really interesting I, it, it is super interesting i would say that's that's kind of a loosely held post-tribulational rapture view mm-hmm. because it's basically the thought of when we see christ that'll be it yeah so we will be taken from the earth as he is ascending or descending from heaven so but you're right i mean that's mm-hmm. a um you know a lot of liturgical traditions kind of hold to that and teach that mm-hmm. a lot of reformed traditions hold to that teach that um, roman catholics lutherans reformed presbyterian yeah so i mean i i think that honestly with this we have to be very 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 aware of our um bias maybe yeah well, yeah our, you and i came from very similar backgrounds we did speaking so yeah we're, we're approaching this topic with with that set of glasses on mm-hmm. even though you you and i may have changed the shade of those glasses a certain extent since our childhood mm-hmm. but um yeah we're approaching it with that we're, we're just assuming everyone knows about the rapture and right. everyone believes certain yeah. things about the rapture well and depending we in my small group this past sun, sunday night i had preached on second thessalonians 2 that morning and then we sat down as a small group and just kind of unpacked and we found out like Half of the small group grew up Southern Baptist, hmm. and so all they heard was pre-trib rapture, pre-trib rapture. It was like preach, especially because of the generation I'm a part of. People grew up in the 80s and 90s in church, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then half of the other group grew up Church of Christ, and hmm. and so like they were like, we didn't really talk about this at all. Hmm. Um, we knew Jesus was coming back, but we never talked about things like a tribulation or a rapture or mm-hmm. where we were in the midst of that. So. Yeah, I think we got to be aware of just because maybe we feel really, really strongly about it, and this is a close-handed issue for us that we may only be um, a part of a small group of people that feel that way. Yeah, um, and this has become a very emotionally charged topic too within evangelical Christianity, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So, if you were to uh, sit around a table with people of varying views on it. And someone expresses it could you know someone expresses a dissenting view, or someone even says, you know, what, I don't believe in the rapture whatsoever. I do believe in the second return of Christ, but I don't believe in the idea that we're going to be caught up or anything like that. It, it, I think there there could be people sitting at that table who could get very emotional over that statement. Oh sure, and uh, break off fellowship and mm-hmm. call someone call that person a heretic. Oh sure, and I think that that's very dangerous and very unfortunate that mm-hmm. um, that some people have gotten to that point that this is like this is a salvific issue. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I would say emotionally, and they they would put it on par with something like the divinity of Christ, even. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's I true. I don't think that that's supposed to be the case. 
I don't either. Um, yeah, that's unfortunate, but I think that, that you're right. I think that is where some people are. Mm-hmm. Hey, so for um, all of these views, so we've got three views, and here's what we're going to do. For every one of the views, we're going to explore what this view states, so the position of this view. We're going to look at the history of this view, like when it started showing up and when it got popular or didn't get popular or why. We're going to look at the proof texts, so where people find this in Scripture. And then we're going to look at the strength of this view and then maybe some problems for each of these views. So we're going to – I want to try to be as, like, fair and unbiased Mm -hmm. with each of these views. Um, And maybe at the end we'll kind of uh, allude to which one we lean towards. But as we're exploring it, let's just uh, go through it and try to be as fair and unbiased as we can so we can – Maybe just get a little bit of an education on each each one of these views. Fair enough? Let's do it. All right. So view number one is the pre-tribulational rapture. So this position holds that all righteous Christians, both those who have died and those who are alive, will be bodily taken up to heaven. They will be raptured before this period of suffering on the earth, the tribulation, before it begins. So according to this belief, every true Christian that has ever existed through the course of the entire Christian era will be instantaneously transformed into a perfect resurrected body. They will escape the trials of the tribulation. Um, So then it kind of has to hold to this, and this is an interesting thought. There will be those who become Christians after the rapture, and they will either live through or they will die as a martyr during the tribulation and then after the tribulation jesus will come to establish the millennial kingdom so did i miss anything or does that pretty much sum up what the pre-tribulational rapture states no i think that yeah you got it you got it okay so where this shows up in history um it shows up as early as 140 a.d And one of the first places it shows up is in a text called the Shepherd of Hermes. And that was a very, very important religious text, so much so that church fathers like Irenaeus considered this text to be part of the canon, like he thought it should be in the canon of Scripture, which it wasn't included in the canon of Scripture for other reasons. But So it shows up early, but truthfully, it it didn't really get popularized, the pre-tribulational rapture view, until the 1830s. And it was popularized by a guy named Charles Nelson Darby and by a certain denomination called the Plymouth Brethren. So Charles Nelson Darby was, uh, he wrote a study Bible, and um, part of that study Bible was really kind of illuminating this and kind of showing the proof text of this and that. So um, in the 18 and 1900s, predominantly in the UK and the US, this view spread. It was very, very, very popular. Mm-hmm. And then, like we mentioned earlier, during the 1970s, this belief in kind of a pre-tribulational rapture, this became popular in wider circles, um, in part because of a book by a guy named Hal Lindsey that was called The Late Great Planet Earth, and that sold between 15 million and 35 million copies. So this was like a cultural phenomena, even among people who were not Christians, were getting this book. I mean, it was kind of like the left-behind books in our generation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, based on the popularity of 
the late great planet planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, there was uh, a series of movies that were made, like A Thief in the Night. Which did you ever see those movies? Those movies yes, were yeah. trippy. Oh man, <laughs> they were super trippy, man. Yeah, I, I yeah. remember. Yeah, like there was guillotines in them, uh-huh. and people hiding in the woods and all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, that gosh. was very very impactful early in my life. It was like the the really dark dystopian nineteen seventies look. Like if you mm-hmm. go back and watch like. Uh, a solvent green with uh charlton heston and all those like and mm-hmm. planet of the apes and those movies like that it kind of had that feel to it you know yeah like that real like uh campy 70s horror sci-fi type thing yeah yeah that's right they were all like wearing bell bottoms and mm-hmm. yeah they were like in this i remember i just vaguely remember that there's being like the old 1970s dodge van that they were <laughs> driving around or, am i yeah, right yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. oh yeah 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 no, we do a 40-day fast at the beginning of every year as our church, and uh, we fast from all secular media. So I have to find Christian movies to watch. And last year, I think on Amazon Prime, I pulled up a couple of those in the Thief in the Night series and, nice. and brushed up on it. They were just as campy and creepy as I remember them. So, But, I mean, again, those films were used as evangelical tools, evangelism tools. Mm-hmm. So youth groups would have... Um, you know, screenings of these films, and they would show them on, you know, you know, a projector outside on the old Betamax player. And then they'd give an altar call at the end, and kids would come forward and get saved. And mm-hmm. and so people truly believed in the, like we said earlier, in the '70s and '80s, based on the conditions of the world at the time. I mean, there was some tremendous amount of political instability. That I mean, the rapture was imminent. I mean, you had the Soviet Union, which seemed to be like a one-world type government going on. You had the, you know the premier of the Soviet Union that, you know, fed all the conditions for this whole thing called Antichrist. So, Hmm. um, you know, I can understand why people would kind of get caught up in that movement. Uh, And in 1995, this doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture was further popularized by the Left Behind series. Uh, You and I were in that generation. I remember reading the Left Behind series. Did you ever read them? I haven't, I haven't read it, but I, I think I saw a couple of movies, maybe. Yeah, the one with Nicolas Cage. Did you see that one? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> You've been left behind. Oh no. That's my Nicolas Cage impersonation. I think, irrespective of what you think about these books and these movies, um, if you want to study evangelical history and church history, these are extremely formational in mm-hmm. in church history and especially modern church history in the evangelical yeah. world. I mean, Absolutely. these these are going to have these are going to have profound impact and influence on the twenty what is that twenty eighteen twenty sixteen elections. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's going to be yep. huge movements of people who see yep. one political candidate being someone very pivotal in, in the end time, like, and th- mm-hmm. that's influencing mm-hmm. how they vote. And that's Absolutely, agree man. or disagree. It's it's fascinating history that you have to dig yep. into if you if you have an interest in it and lest we uh write off the impact of the left behind series it sold close to 80 million copies good gosh and it was made into several movies and this is what's interesting four real-time strategy video games nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so if you're looking to game and you want a good solid nice clean christian game the left behind what is the like what's the premise of these i don't know and and would it be like the same outcome every time because jesus comes back and everything's okay like i don't how do you lose that game 
like the, I guess the boss is the boss at and, and each level is like the Antichrist, and he's <laughs> I don't like know. trying to pin you down. And I, I have no idea. Somebody needs to do some research on that and get back to us because that a real time strategy game about being left behind is just interesting to me. But huh. so some proof text for this view. Um, probably the strongest is First Thessalonians four thirteen and eighteen that Gabe read earlier about being caught up together with the Lord in the air. But another one is one I taught on uh, this past week. Gabe, could you look up 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, and yeah. read that for us? That's a that's another um, proof text. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily disconcerted or alarmed by any spirit or message or letter seeming to be from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has already come. Okay. So what he says is, and this is a proof text again for this, if you look at verse 1 again, it says, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered to him. So people that hold to this view say what that verse is clearly saying is there's two separate events. There's the coming of the Lord Jesus, and there's our being gathered to him. And so what they interpret that passage as well as several other passages in the New Testament um, is that there are two separate events. Mm -hmm. There's two phases or two stages that um, refer to the return of Christ as being positive and hopeful for believers, believers, but then the coming of the Lord Jesus is negative and wrathful for unbelievers, and so there's kind of these, there's this divide, there's two separate events, there's the are being gathered to him, and then seven years after that, there's the coming of the Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and that, that's a really good um, point to make because people do draw that dichotomy um, whereas like I bring up Stacy again, for, for instance, like in, in her theological view, uh, the, the, there was not, not two separate events. There was just the right. second coming of Christ. Whereas my growing up, my, the view that was taught to me was that there are these two separate events. You have, you have the rapture and then you have the second coming. Yeah. Another proof text is first Corinthians 15 verses 51 and 52. I'll read it. It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in the flash and the twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And so basically, where most people that hold to this viewpoint kind of stake their claim is, there are 22 references to rapture passages, this whole idea of us being caught up, us being changed, and those are distinctly different from about 20 different references to second coming passages, the second coming of the Lord, the appearing of Jesus in the flesh. And so basically they see this as there's two separate events. There's one for the church, and then there's one some seven years later of Jesus coming back. And so that's that's kind of their proof text in it. Um, a couple other things. In the book of Revelation, the term church, ecclesia, um, doesn't occur until after Revelation 4.1. Mm-hmm. Um so and until okay wait wait a second it so <laughs> i'm sorry 
I screwed this up royally. So between Revelation 4 to Revelation 22, that word church is absent from the text. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So people that hold to this view say, well, the reason that word is absent is because God is rapturing the church at the beginning of this tribulation. And what he's doing during the tribulation is he's dealing specifically with Israel. Mm -hmm. So here's another term I'm going to just throw out there. So if you're lost and confused, you're like, okay, we've heard about rapture, we've heard about tribulation, we've heard about millennial, millennialism and premillennialism. There's another term called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism basically states the church is a parenthesis inserted between God's dealing with Israel. And so the tribulation and the millennium focus on the future of ethnic and national Israel. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pre-tribulational rapture folks say the church has to be removed from the earth so that God can deal primarily with Israel. And that's kind of a proof text that they give, a proof idea that they give from the text of why this would be the case. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Can I give a, a word of advice to people who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture? Do and this isn't a rebuke or anything like that. This is just, I, I want you to stop using Luke 17 as a proof text for a pre-tribulation rapture. <laughs> okay. Because it says, you know, the, the days are coming, will you desire... They, they, they see the disciples say, like, what will be, like, what will be the sign of your coming? And he said, it'll be like in the days of Noah, right? They were eating mm -hmm. and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So this is where it gets interesting. This is where we kind of tend to use it as a proof text for pre-tribulation pre rapture. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One mm, will be taken mm -hmm. and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? So this is key. So in, in you know, if we're going to use this as a proof text for the rapture, the ones who are taken, that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but he says, where, Lord? In other words, where will they be taken? And he says, where the corpse is, mm. there the vultures will gather. Mm. That's probably not heaven. No, 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 no. <laughs> that they're taken away too. Yeah. But, I mean, I've heard this time and time again used as a proof text of pre-tribulation yeah. rapture. You know, there's two in the field, there's two in the house, there's two grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. It's like this secret event. But I'm like, mm -hmm. well, let's look at Luke 17 because the ones that are taken doesn't sound very, very fun. Yeah. Anyways, it's just a word of advice. For yeah, that is. And um, the Gospel of Matthew also is mm -hmm. is referencing that event. And um, I think where I land with that, I would consider myself a partial preterist. So most of, most of the passage of um, the Olivet Discourse, both in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, is kind of what's called telescoping prophecy. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that Jesus was referring to had an immediate fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Mm -hmm. But other things that Jesus is prophesying have an ultimate fulfillment in the second return. Yeah. yeah. So, or the second coming and the return of Christ. So, um, 
yeah, trying to kind of cram a square peg in a round hole and say, ah, that's exactly what this is talking about. Yeah, that doesn't really fit if you're trying to do that because being taken in that sense is is kind of being taken to destruction or being taken to captivity and death. Mm-hmm. So that's not really that doesn't really fit. So good good point. So some strengths of the pre-tribulational rapture is that it does kind of leave this very interesting um, room for God to have a distinct plan for Israel in the last days, where God deals separately with Israel. As the bride of Christ, the church, is protected from the wrath of God. So that's, a, I guess, a strength to that. You know, it's a very neat and tidy. Um, there's the dispensation of Israel and the dispensation of the church, the age of the church and the age of the Israel. Another strength is that this thing called imminency, meaning that Jesus could return at any moment like a thief in the night, um, that's preserved and protected in this view, right? I mean, we could be sitting here recording this podcast and then, boom, my shoes and my my jeans and my shirt are left behind with this microphone, <laughs> and uh, you and I are gone. And and that could happen any time, right? Whereas other viewpoints say, no, there has to be some signs and some prophetic things that happen before he returns. And so people say, well, then how is how is it that Jesus could return like a thief in the night, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are some strengths to this view. Can you think of other strengths to this view? Other mm-hmm. than I really hope this is true because yeah. that means the church doesn't have to suffer? Yeah, it sounds amazing. And Right. Uh, spoiler alert, I don't hold to this view. <laughs> but You weren't supposed to give it away. <laughs> now people are going to turn off the podcast and they're going to be like, well, Gabe doesn't believe it. So I hope people don't just want, like, they want to hit play on this podcast and just, hey, I want you to tell me what you think. <laughs> um, this isn't how it's going to work. But I, I don't hold to this view. I know people who do, and I mm-hmm. deeply respect some people that do hold to this view. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I see all the typology in scripture pointing to, uh, us having to go through a period of tribulation. Uh, and you look at, I mean, just like Israel and Egypt, for instance, and the 10 plagues, I think Israel had to experience something like seven of the 10 plagues, you know, yeah. they were there in the midst of that. Um, but suffering produces uh, joy and refinement of our faith. And we tend to look at that as like a bad thing. Right. So, yeah, I, I don't see a lot of strengths because I don't, <laughs> well, I don't ascribe that's to That's called a bias that you yeah. do, but, um, <laughs> No, I mean, I could see strength to it. You know, people are saying, well, I mean, Christ loves his church. He's going to protect his church yeah. from from this. That, that is a strength. Um, but some problems to it is there is no real specific teaching of kind of this secret coming for the church in Scripture. Um, as much as people who hold to this pre-trib rapture viewpoint uh, would say, hey, there's two different events being described, that doesn't really seem explicit in the scripture that kind of seems like you have to dig for it and take a verse and say, Hey, this verse isn't explicitly saying it, but here's yeah. what it's saying. You know, um, not only that, a, a pre-tribulational rapture is really not necessary for believers to be spared the wrath of God during the tribulation. So Gabe, you mentioned this earlier, God spared his people from his wrath during the Egyptian plagues mm-hmm. in Goshen. Like, the people of God, I mean, <laughs> that's the whole thing of Passover. The blood of the lamb was on the doorpost of the house, so the angel of death passed over them. And so God is perfectly able and capable of shielding and protecting his people from his wrath. 
if his people are on earth during the tribulation. So saying his people have to be absent from the earth during that tribulation or else they're all going to die under the wrath of God, I don't, I don't really know if that's biblical. I don't really know you can make the case for that. Um, another problem with this is that it's only really about 200 years old. Mm. So we tend to be fairly chronologically biased in that most people listening to this were probably, like you said, were formed theologically by the generations that came before us and that discipled us. So in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm assuming most people listening to this podcast are either American or British or have been discipled or taught by content and theology have been put out by the American or British church. Mm-hmm. So if we're just being truth-tellers, this is a predominantly a British and American teaching. So it's not widely taught in the global church, and it's only been around about 200 years. Now, I say that. It, it was around before that, but it wasn't widely taught before that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So that's a little bit suspect if you're thinking about 2,000 years of church history. You had about 1,800 years of church history where this doctrine was not considered a major doctrine, and then the past 200 years it kind of popped up, and there are some folks that are going so far as to say this is salvific. Eh, I don't know about that. Hmm. You'd have to go back in church history, and we're going to mention some names that held to other view and say none of these guys had it right. So um, that's kind of that's kind of a problem with it, I would think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's the pre-tribulational rapture view. Anything else you want to add to that before we go to the next one? Just, you know, guys, if you hold to this, um, it seems to be... You're not saved! No, I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was no, Gabe's that, voice, not mine. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, but no, there <laughs> seems to be a propensity of people who hold to this. They want to guess when this event will happen. And I just, like I said, I got sent a video, an hour and 41 minute video that was talking about the exact timing of this event. Stop doing that. Okay? <laughs> you're discrediting. You're discrediting our faith when it doesn't happen that way. You're discrediting yourself and your witness. Just stop doing that. It's okay. It's okay to not know when that would happen. But, but I thought he was coming back in 1999 before Y2K. Mm. What happened? Mm. 99 reasons why he's coming back in 99. See, you can't do that book anymore because what? 22 reasons why he's coming back in yeah. 2022. I mean, it's just not enough. It's not enough reasons, you know? You got to have 88 or 89 yeah. or 99. Yeah. I got 99 reasons and... Ain't one. I wonder though, it 2088, if someone could rewrite that. <laughs> 88 reasons why Jesus is returning yeah. in 2088. Yeah, maybe our, our collective memory will just forget the fact that that was written in 1988. I will, I will be 103 years old, so if I'm still around, I'll be like, I've seen this before. <laughs> They'll be like, <laughs> be like shut, <laughs> shut up, old man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, viewpoint two post, post Malone. Rapture. No, just kidding. Oh, God. Post-tribulational rapture. So this position is that Christians will not be taken up into heaven for eternity before the tribulation, but they will be received or gathered in the air by Christ as Christ is descending and together they will descend with Christ to establish the kingdom of God on earth and that will occur at the end of the tribulation. So essentially, his his people will be caught up to meet him as he is descending. And there's a huge um, there's a huge correlation between wedding feasts and this idea. 
of a wedding party kind of processing to the house of the bride and the bride meeting the groom and the bride and the groom processing together to the place of the wedding itself. And so um, that's kind of the way that post-tribulational rapture folks view it is that um, the church will be caught up with Christ, meet Christ in the air, and then descend together, and the kingdom of God will be established before the millennial reign. So the history of this position, this was held by um, many of the church fathers, such as Justin Martyr, um, Augustine of Hippo, Tertullian, um, Irenaeus. Somebody told me earlier, uh, my good buddy Mason Crooks told me, and Mason, if you're listening, I'm calling you out, Boudreaux. He told me that Irenaeus was a pre-trib guy, hmm. and actually, as I was studying, Irenaeus was not a pre-trib guy. Irenaeus was very, very, very uh, complimentary of the shepherd of Hermes, which taught pre-trib rapture, but Irenaeus himself was a post-trib hmm. rapture guy. So just wanted to call out my, <laughs> my buddy Mason if you're listening to this. So anyway, I love you, Mason. Uh, but Irenaeus was probably a post-trib rapture guy. Uh, this was taught in the Didache. We've talked about that manual for church life, the Didache. It was held by the early church historian Hippolytus. Um, and so many people have argued this was kind of the predominant view of Christ's second coming in the early church. Uh, and throughout church history, this has kind of been the viewpoint held by like we mentioned earlier, a lot of like high church traditions, liturgical, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, um, Reform. Charles Spurgeon was a post-tribber. Um, in 1952, there was a resurgence of post-tribulational rapture teaching, and it was kind of in response to so much pre-trib teaching in that. But honestly, throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you didn't really see a lot of post-tribbers because of the fact that pre-trib rapture teaching was so kind of mainstreamed. Mm. But uh, now, modern post-tribbers would include um, Wayne Grudem. He uh, wrote a really exhaustive volume on systematic theology that we teach our uh, pastoral interns and church planning candidates. Uh, John Piper. Uh, interestingly, I thought this was super interesting. Mike Bickle from International House of Prayer is a post-trib guy. Hmm. You remember the episode we taught of uh, NAR? We talked yeah. about Mike Bickle. Yeah. He's a post-trib guy. I would not have thought that at all. Yeah, me neither. Uh, Greg, I think you say his name, Kokel. He's an apologist. He holds to this view as well. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, this tends to be an evangelicalism, a bit of a minority view now because the pre-trib view is still very, very prominent, but it's still there. So that's a bit of the history on that. In the early church, though, one could look at this and almost say this was the predominant view in the early church, but in the last 200 years or so, at least in American and British evangelicalism, this has not been the predominant view. This has kind of been a minority view. Hmm. So some proof text of this view. Um, the one that you and I kind of talked about is, and, and what post-tribbers would say, is that all throughout the Scripture, the church is never told that it will escape tribulation or suffering on the earth. Um, in fact, the Greek word for tribulation is the word thalipsis, and that's used 55 times in the New Testament, and 47 of those relate to tribulation that must be endured by the saints. Hmm. And that same word 
thalipsis is used in Matthew twenty four twenty one of the Great Tribulation. Hmm. So, again, First Thessalonians four seventeen describes the church meeting the Lord in the air. But a post-tribulational viewpoint would say it doesn't really say the Lord takes the church on to heaven for three and a half years or seven years or, you know, that the church has to be gone from the earth during that time of tribulation. Um, and throughout the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 18, the people of God are present. And this uh, this does include the church. There's no reason to exclude the church from these tribulation passages. Of course, somebody from a pre-trib rapture viewpoint would say, well, that's all the people that got saved after the rapture. Um, but again, that's that's not really explicit in the text. One would have to kind of go to the text believing that to find that in the text. Um, the text that I taught on this past week, 2 Thessalonians 2, talks all about a, a group of believers, a church in Thessalonica, who thought that the day of the Lord had already come. So they probably thought they were kind of living through the day of the Lord. So if they believed in a pre-trib rapture, they probably wouldn't have thought so. Hmm. Yeah. They probably would have thought, you know, if the day of the Lord's already come, what are we still doing here? I guess none of us are saved. Um, so Paul doesn't tell them um, that they're going to be spared from the day of the Lord. He just tells them, hey, what you're going through now isn't the day of the Lord, right? So, um, again, a, a post-trib viewpoint would kind of say that's not describing two separate events. It's just one. Um, another thing is this, this Greek word that is used often in the New Testament to describe the second coming of Christ is the Greek word... Um, I think I'm going to say this incorrectly, so if you're a Greek scholar, please don't send me a nasty email. Uh, Perousia? Perousia? Do you know Greek? I know you're more Hebrew than Greek. Yeah, I'm more Hebrew than Greek, but okay. yeah, I think it's like Perusia. Perusia? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's an ancient you know, Greco-Roman concept that as a dignitary was coming close to a town or a city, um, that the people of that town or city would go out to greet them um, mm -hmm. It talks about this. Uh, you remember? I'm trying to remember. Gosh, there was these. Um, Paul was approaching a village, and the people go out to meet him. It says um, they they went as far as like it, it actually describes how far they all went out. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Acts twenty in Acts twenty eight, all the Christians in Rome. Um, they it says they came out as far as the Forum of Appius. And hmm. three taverns to meet Paul. Yeah, so it's interesting. Like the idea. And yeah. one time I was I was coming into this really rural village in Uganda, and we were like a good half a mile away from the village, but we hit this like big mob of people standing in the middle of the road, mm -hmm. and they were there to greet us. And they yeah. they basically met us outside the village and then walked us in front of our car. They walked us into the village. So hmm. I think it's connected to that idea. Yeah. So that's a really good way to explain it. Yeah, it, it basically is this. That's the word used for the second coming of Christ in Matthew 24, 27, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, um, 1 John 2, 28. Um, and then in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, the specific term Paul uses for those who are left alive until the coming of the Lord is that um, 
that parousia. They will greet the Lord in the air as he's coming. And so kind of the post-tribulational rapture teaching basically says there's no reason to believe that this returns is a first stage and then a second stage. It kind of seems like they're one and the same. Um, and then really like in, in the book of Matthew, and I'll just kind of skip down, um, Matthew 24, really there's no mention of anything remotely similar to the rapture until Jesus says uh, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one into the heavens to the other. But that's just after the Son of Man appears in the sky and he comes in the clouds. So that doesn't really make sense if that's supposed to happen first, right? Because it says the Son of Man appears in the sky and in the clouds in verse 30 of Matthew 24, and then right after that he gathers his people. Mm -hmm. So to say that those are somehow reversed, that you know most post-tribulational rapture people would say that's not, that's not really the case. Yeah, like in, in Matthew 25, it says, When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Mm -hmm. Then it says all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps and so on. Yeah. So some strengths of this view is this view kind of coincides with the most literal reading of Scripture. So the most literal reading of Scripture is just that there is one return of Christ. That it's the what that word, word in the Greek that Gabe knows how to pronounce that I don't know how to pronounce, parousia? I think I'm saying it right, yeah, parousia. <laughs> We're going to have some Greek guy. Yeah. Some Stephanos Galifianakis is going <laughs> to, you messed it up, you can't speak Greek. <laughs> that's more Italian. That's, 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 that's too. If you're listening from Greece, I want to apologize. I've apologized to people from England and Greece today. <laughs> Stephanos Galifianakis. Uh yeah, but I mean, this tends to be the most straightforward reading. There's just one return of Christ, um, not really a two-stage with a secret rapture than a visible return. Another strength is this is the most accepted viewpoint of the early church. So for a couple of centuries, this was what was taught. And then again, 200 years ago, this kind of was put on the shelf in favor of this other view. Mm -hmm. But there are some problems with this view, and probably the most glaring problem is the problem of imminency. So Jesus said he will return like a thief in the night, and no man knows the hour of the day. But if you hold to this view, you've got to admit that we are kind of going to know that Jesus is coming because we're going to see the man of lawlessness. We're going to see all the events of the Great Tribulation. We're going to see all these horrible things happening, and so we're going to know like he's he's coming, and it's going to be you know it's going to be really. Soon, so we're gonna actually know when he's coming, not the exact time, but we're gonna know kind of the season. So it isn't isn't really going to be like a thief in the night. This is what pre-tribulational rapture people will say in response to that. You you can't have a an imminent return of Christ if the people of God are on the earth during the tribulation. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Another problem with this view is the teaching that Christians must suffer through the tribulation. And so many people say, why would Jesus do that to his bride? It's like he's beating his wife. He's battering his bride. He's not really loving her well if he basically punishes her along with the unbelieving world. Um, and then another problem is people say, well, what do you do with Israel if the church and the Israel are both present during the seven years of tribulation? 
Like, what about God's plan for Israel? So, Gabe, since you have already played your cards as a post-tribulational rapture guy, answer me that. What do you do with Israel if both Israel and the church are present? Huh? Huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. What do you do? I, I am not a traditional dispensationalist. So mm. I see, I see uh, faith in Christ, the Messiah of Israel, as being means through which you are adopted into the commonwealth of Israel. Mm. Um, you know, you could reference Romans 11 and Ephesians 2 kind of stuff. That anyway, that uh, there isn't this hard and fast dichotomy between the church and then Israel. So I don't I don't hold to the dispensationalist view. I you know I know and respect a lot of people who do, but um, yeah, I see I see kind of like Genesis forty five is kind of the typology I see developing where you have uh, Joseph who's betrayed and sold into Egypt, right? And he changes his name, he changes his appearance to the point that his own brothers can't even recognize him, but he saves the then known Gentile world of a famine, and the famine last you know lo and behold seven years right mm-hmm. um but his hmm. brother that's really interesting i didn't really connect that with eschatology yeah yeah so his brothers come to him don't recognize who he is don't recognize that he he's the one they betrayed he's the savior and he's the giver of bread is literally what um zafnaf panea means and wait then panea he, means bread well, I think it's it's Egyptian. I don't I don't know. So how to Panera it. bread is just yeah. Panera bread. <laughs> it just means bread bread. Let's Zaf go get some soup Panera. and bread bread. Okay, sorry. A, yeah, yeah. So they, so the, his brothers come to him, and in Genesis forty five, he says, "I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt." But he says, "You know, don't don't grieve. You know, because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I preserve life." He says in verse six of chapter forty five, "For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years." in which there would be neither plowing, plowing nor harvesting. So it's like there there becomes this like eclipse of hmm. the non-Hebrews that uh, Joseph saved and fed and kept alive. And, and then there's like this merging of the Hebrews who then realize that he is their brother and they, and they are saved as well. So hmm. maybe... You know, you could put that in your eschatological pipe and smoke it, but um, so I, but I'm not a dispensationalist, so I'm approaching this a little bit different than yeah. What would you know, your view of what is that called? Is that like there's dispensationalism, there's covenant theology? What would yours be? Yours would be like a commonwealth mm-hmm. theology. I mean, is that maybe is there a name like for that? A, I don't know. There is yeah, commonwealth or can we ado- call it adoption theology? I don't know. A Gabian theology because your name yeah. is Gabe. We can just name it after you. Yeah, or Joel, Joel, Julian, uh, Julian. Yes. Okay. All right, well, so, let's look at, yeah, yeah that's that, interesting. That, that, that's that very look, interesting. That looks like a weakness if you're a dispensationalist. Right. But for me, that doesn't look like a weakness. Yeah, so basically that Israel and Israel and the church are together, but really the true Israel is those who have trusted in Messiah, Christ. Yeah, so like okay. Paul says in Romans 11, that right. unbelieving Israel's broken off. and Yeah, so. Right, okay. Well, the last viewpoint is called the mid-tribulational rapture. So the position that this viewpoint holds is that the rapture will occur halfway through the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation. But it will occur, it will occur before the worst part of it. So throughout the scripture, you see that um, in Daniel 7, uh, the saints will be given over to tribulation for times, times, and half a time, and that's kind of interpreted to mean three and a half years. And so 
before kind of the Great Tribulation, the the worst half, the second half of the Great Tribulation, Christians will be taken from the earth. So that's kind of what the mid-tribulational rapture teaches. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, some history on this. To be honest, and maybe I'm just not the guy to do the research on this, I I researched as much as I could on the mid-tribulational rapture and when it began, when it started. And to be honest, and maybe I just need to spend more time on this, I could not find when this started. Um, if somebody knows or somebody's done more research on this, please send us an email. I would really love to know. I guess I'm just not looking in the right places. Um, I found one paper written on this from, I think it was... Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary of a guy who who wrote why he is a mid-trib rapture guy. Um, but really, this is this is decidedly the minority viewpoint of Christian eschatology. There are not many mid-tribulational people out there. Um, so I don't really feel like us spending a ton of time on this is really helpful because it doesn't really seem to have much traction or it doesn't really seem to have a lot of I mean, it has really kind of one one proof text, and that's Daniel seven twenty five. So that's about it. Hmm. So again, the proof text is that Daniel seven twenty five says saints will be given over to tribulation for times, times, and half a time. That's interpreted to be three and a half years. And so mid trib people say saints will go through the first period. That's the beginning of the travail but then they'll be raptured into heaven before the severe outpouring of God's wrath in the second half. That's called the Great Tribulation. And there will also be kind of this halfway point in that seven years where the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation. So there will be some sort of a desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. And so at that time, then, the saints will be taken from the earth. That's basically the the proof text, right? Hmm. Um, and this is from this guy's paper. I, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get his... Uh, information to cite him, but this is from this paper the guy wrote. um, I believe it was from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It says, before the signs of the end events, um, there will be events that happen periodically to some degree at all times. The precise moment of the beginning of the tribulation will probably not be clear even to those who are undergoing it, so the gradual worsening of events may be suggestive but not obvious that one is in tribulation. We actually may be in the tribulation now. However, like a frog in a slowly heated pot, those undergoing tribulation may not discern the meaning of the events. The beginning of the tribulation would not be clearly noticed, thus no one would be able to set accurately the date of the events on the end based on the date of the beginning of the signs of the end. Therefore, one should expect the imminent return of Christ at any time. So basically what he's saying is we can still have imminency. We can still believe that the rapture is going to happen at any time because we're not going to know when the beginning of the tribulation is. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. It does, it does kind of reconcile that a bit. Yeah, so it fixes the imminency problem that the post-trib rapture still seems to have. And kind of this viewpoint is the best of both worlds. <laughs> the church is still going to suffer, but ultimately they're going to be preserved from the Great Tribulation. So that's kind of a strength of this, if you want to call it that. Um, but the glaring problems of this is there's not a whole lot of proof text. Um, and you really, you can't really find this from just a basic reading of scripture. You kind of got to dig and put things together and okay, this is this over here. This is this over there. Not only that, there's really not much history of this in the early church. 
I mean, if there is, I'm not able to find it, and I don't think I'm a terrible researcher. But um, yeah, again, if if you're a better researcher than me and you know more on this, I'd love to see an email from you of any history of this. But I, I certainly couldn't see much history of this in the early church. This is decidedly a minority view now, and it kind of always has been. So, well, and if I could go back, I mean, something we we don't necessarily need imminence. Um, so I'm going to use First Thessalonians five. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Sounds like imminence, right? Mm -hmm. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk get, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope, hope of salvation. Um, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus hmm. Christ. So in other words, I think what Paul is saying is like, yeah, there will be imminence. There will be a sudden, wow, what, he's here. We didn't, you know. Right. It's like a wave of destruction, he says, will come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. But he, it seems it seems to me like he's drawing a dichotomy of like there are those who are of the day who that that day will not be such a surprise as it is for people who are not children of the light. Does yeah, absolutely. And I think that's interesting, too. Like if if the rapture is going to be like a thief in the night and it's supposed to be like a good thing for us as believers— since when is having somebody rob you in the middle of the night a good thing for anybody? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's almost as if one could say that that day coming like a thief in the night is only for those who aren't right with God. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes upon them, it's going to be like a thief in the night. But people that are expecting him and are awaiting him are excited about his return. It's not going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be like the coming of the bridegroom at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I've never really unpacked that. So, hmm. Okay, so you've already played your cards, so I don't even want to ask you this question. <laughs> you've well, already told yeah, us I, which you, which I, you I, gravitate most towards, and you've told I us why. I did. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I see, yeah, I definitely see a post-tribulation return of Christ in Scripture. That seems pretty evident to me. Okay. And that what what this snatching away, uh, I think it is harpazio in the Greek, mm-hmm. the snatching away looks like on a, on a, how, a practical level, I'm not sure. Right, but I I see the the event as being a one event thing, um, mm-hmm. and there will be some degree of like going to meet him. What exactly that looks like, I'm not sure. But right. yeah, I, I so I don't believe in a in a pre tribulation rapture, and then then we're returned to the earth for the time of okay. millennium. When did you make that shift? Because you grew up believing in that. But when was yeah. it that you kind of made that shift? Uh, it's been about eight or ten years now that I've kind of reanalyzed and kind of audited so this isn't like a new recent thing and it's it's something mm-hmm. that i i never teach on in our in our in our meetings in our in our congregation um i just don't even touch it i don't even go there because it's something that people like to to gravitate towards and and use as a divisive tool or use it to bludgeon people and i i don't i don't want to even go there so i just don't even touch it and like mm-hmm. i said i try to i try to make my teaching and 
any sermons or anything like that. I'm obsessed with what, what the Gospels are obsessed with, and that's right. the here and now and making disciples. Yeah, and being prepared for when he does mm-hmm. return. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Lay your cards out there, for All us. right. Um, anybody that knows me and that sat through my series on Revelation probably knows this. I am in the same boat. I am a post-tribulational rapture guy. Mm. I did not grow up being a post-tribulational rapture guy. I was a pre-trib rapture guy all the way until I took a class in college on the book of Revelation, and it was Dr. Waddell at Southeastern. And I believe your brother was in that class. I don't think you were in that class, but I think John was in that class with me, mm. Gabe. Okay. It was a really it was, it was a really good class. But um, here's kind of how I made that shift. I remember going to that class, and uh, Dr. Waddell on the very first day of the class says, okay, so what do, we, what do we know about the second coming of Christ? What do we?" And, of course, we're all assembly of God, mm-hmm. pre-trib, pre-millennial. We'd been schooled and a ton of left behind, all this stuff. So he asks us, and we start spouting it out, and he starts writing it on the whiteboard, all these things you know, that we had been taught. He does that for a couple of minutes, and then he just stops, and he goes, okay. Find this in Revelation. Mm. And you heard crickets. <laughs> mm. Mm. And it's not that the things that we had been taught, we couldn't find in Scripture. There were things that we'd been taught that were decidedly in Scripture, and there were other places, like the book of Daniel or Second Thessalonians or First Thessalonians. But it is that we had not, we had not used the Scriptures first as our... Mm-hmm. Uh, as our source for understanding these things, we'd use first the teachings of other people as our source for understanding these things. Yeah, and I think they call that eisegesis. Yes. Where you fit a narrative or an idea into Scripture. Uh-huh. And so what Dr. Waddell did, and shout out to Dr. Robbie Waddell at Southeastern University, is he started me specifically, and I'm sure many others that have taken his classes, on this journey of reading the text for what it is and looking to see what the text says and first and foremost letting our views be shaped by the text and not by some teaching that we hold in the back of our hat and say, oh, okay, here's where I can find that in the text. Mm. And so I didn't go full-blown post-trib after that class, but that kind of started the wheels turning. And then as I studied through Revelation the first time, I started leaning more towards it. And then I studied it the second time, I started leaning more towards it. And then by the time I flat out taught it, I think I got to that point where I'm like, man, I I really don't see two separate returns of Christ. I really just can't see that in the text. Man, I could be wrong, Mm. and honestly, I hope I am, because if that means we get rescued out of here before things get bad, praise God. But I I just don't think the Bible teaches that. Mm. And if I'm wrong, sure, I'm willing to admit that, but I really don't think that the Bible supports a secret rapture of the church, and then seven years later, a public visible return of Christ. I just I just don't see that in Scripture. And again, I could be wrong, but I just don't think the Bible supports that. I, th- I think that has all the earmarks of like a good, healthy transition in, in theology and in eschatological views. So mm-hmm. you're, you're, there's a lot of time, right, for your transition to occur. And there's a lot of study and there's a lot of like really being honest with yourself and digging into the text. And then there's like a, you're approaching it very cautiously and you're teaching it with a lot of like, look, I, I was wrong before. Um, I could be wrong again, but this is what I'm seeing now. And I think that's, that's a really good and healthy and, and humble thing to do. 
Well, um, and even when I teach this, I always try to say, man, here's here's like here's this verse. I did this this past weekend. I said, here's this verse, Second Thessalonians two verse one, and here are three viewpoints for this mm-hmm. verse. There's what pre-tribbers say this verse means. There's what post-tribbers say this verse means, and here's what preterists say this verse means. Which, by the way, full full preterists think that most of the prophecies in the New Testament got fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Which I'm not a full preterist, but that's what they say. Mm. And I said, here's here's the three, here's what they say, and here's kind of what I see based on my study, but I could be wrong, and you need to study it, and you need to come to your own conclusions about what you believe the Scriptures say on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. So um, that's where I land. Again, I could be wrong, and, and I really hope I am, but I, I believe that anytime the saints endure tribulation and persecution, um, there is a purifying that happens, and there is a... Um, a cry that goes out from the heart of the church that says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I think it's a little interesting to me and a little suspect to me that where pre-tribulational theology takes off is in Western civilization and not the global church, Mm. because we're not currently enduring the kind of persecution that Christians in Afghanistan and China are enduring. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we prefer a theology that says we'll never have to. Mm Versus the global church says, well, we're already enduring it, and so we're looking forward to that day. So we could already be in the tribulation. We don't know, but man, yeah. we know what it means to suffer, and we also see the beauty and the purifying results of suffering. Yeah. So I, I just think it's a little suspect. The only kind of civilizations and cultures that are really obsessed with this tend to be the ones that are the most comfortable and have the most freedom. But that's just me. So. Yeah, and I think you know you hear of these stories of healings and you know, interactions with the supernatural in some of these countries and, and, you know, the the persecution that goes on, it seems like there's a proportionate amount of, uh, healing and, um, and, and operation in the, the prophetic, whatever you want to call that, you know, (laughs) and, and, and the amount of persecution. And I wonder, and it's just me kind of thinking out loud here, if the church in America in the body of Christ in America experiences tribulation and hardship and suffering, if that will produce refinement and that refinement will produce more of these uh, supernatural manifestations, I guess we could call it that, like healing <laughs> and... Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. But Well, and even an explosion of evangelism and disciple-making. Yeah. So yeah. a friend of mine, his name is Shadonke Johnson, and he is responsible for a church planning movement in Sierra Leone that in the past 10 years have baptized more Muslims in Sierra Leone than the mm. past 10 centuries combined times 10. Wow. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's, it's incredible. It's like a work of God that is incredible. But they have also lost so many people on their disciple-making movement team as martyrs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's it's amazing that it's a very dangerous place in certain parts of the country to preach the gospel because you have Muslims that will literally kill you. Mm-hmm. And yet it's exploding. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, in America, anybody can, you know, openly meet and talk about the Bible, and yet Christianity is shrinking. Mm-hmm. So when someone says, well, we don't need to suffer, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Look, look at what the church is doing in places where suffering is happening. Mm-hmm. And then look at what Christianity is doing in places that suffering is not happening. Yeah. 
if you if you watch on YouTube, you can find YouTube videos of this. But if you look at how olive oil is produced and refined, uh, it's a very fascinating process. But it goes through all these different pressings and filtering and all this stuff. And the point of all that is to produce, in ancient times at least, this really bright light. So that the cleaner the oil, the more consistent of a light that's going to produce. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a really good picture of the body of Messiah in terms of you know, suffering, how, how we are to view tribulation, suffering and refinement and in our faith. But Hmm. yeah, but I think we could all agree, you know, I I should say, I shouldn't say all, but (laughs) we should, we should all agree and find fellowship and encouragement in the idea that our King is returning Amen, and he will come, uh, hopefully soon and in our days, but if not, we should be teaching our children and teaching the people in our congregation and our sphere of influence um, like he like he's not coming back for another 200 years so that they will carry on the torch of yeah. our faith. And, Absolutely. But let's live like he's coming back today. Absolutely. Do you think Christians can agree on the fact that Jesus is coming back without having to agree on the specifics of when the rapture happens or how the rapture happens or anything like that? Can we agree yes. to disagree on things? And- yeah, we can, and we can, and I think we do. Um, yeah. We need to do more of it, yeah, and and not let, not let sensational personalities on the internet or wherever um, convince you otherwise. That's not an issue that is worth breaking off fellowship or dividing over. Yeah, but there's this guy on YouTube that he's convinced that the rapture is going to happen next week. I mean, mm. <laughs> I watched his three and a half hour YouTube video. Surely, mm-hmm. surely he can't be lying to me. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, surely. Yeah. Well, well, I'm going to leave you with a couple thoughts here, Josh. See if you can finish the stanzas. Okay. Life, life was filled. This brings us back to 1969. Life was filled <laughs> with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. Mm. Children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. Mm. Do you know the Do you know the rest of it? I I I know the song. That's uh, Larry Norman. Yeah. And the song is. Uh, I wish we'd all been. been ready. I wish we'd. No, wait, wait. Larry Norman. Children says, died I, and the days grew cold. Nah, 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 nah. Mm. I wish we. I have that on vinyl. There's no time to change your mind. Yeah. How could you have been so blind? The father spoke. The demons dined. And you've the been left behind. Come and you've been left behind. Ooh. Mm. Yeah, that's that's good. That's a great record, by the way. Well, Gabe, this has been a a real treat, my friend. Yeah, it's good talk. Wow, we, we're at a minute, minute, or uh, sorry, hour and a half. Wow. Golly, man, we just we're started giving, recording. We're giving Joe Rogan a run for his. Money. I'm telling you, Joe Rogan and Jocko, man, this three and a half hour long podcast. So, uh, anybody that's made it this far, congratulations! You've won the golden <laughs> ticket. Email, <laughs> email Beards and Bible at Gmail or Beards and Bible podcast. I can't get our email right. What is our email? Beards and Bible podcast at gmail.com if you've made it this far and we'll give you a golden ticket. Yeah, it'll be the pre tribulation uh, ticket. (laughs) It's your ticket out of here. (laughs) Anyway, thank you guys for listening. You got any questions, concerns, cries of outrage? Send Gabe an email, not me. Yes. Thanks for listening. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.